mindlessly accepting what we are given as news is so much easier than sifting through what's real and what's not. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive, and that includes a free press. Okay, I'm old. When I was growing up, one of the main reasons we loved America and hated the Soviet Union was because we had, we had freedom of the press. The people there only saw state-dictated propaganda. We also knew that Thomas Jefferson enthusiastically embraced this freedom. He said, a press that is free to investigate and criticize the government is absolutely essential in a nation that practices self-government. Jefferson also said, we're left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government. I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. He also said, and this is interesting, but I should mean that every man, every woman too, should receive those papers and be capable of reading them. Of course, people don't read these days. They just uh, look at their phones and... Uh, Accept what's being handed out. Well, our returning guest today, one who proudly identifies as a journalist, Patrick Lawrence, with clear sadness, writes in a new essay, The Historic Collapse of Journalism, that he sees 9-11 as a point of departure. Instead of the vital, essential independence, members of the press became more like the propagandists we in the 50s saw and fiercely opposed in Russia. It seems the press has bought the idea that the only way to see things is the American way. That's a big difference, and it's of great concern to lots of us. Patrick Lawrence is a correspondent, was a correspondent abroad for many years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune, and yes, I remember that. He's a columnist, essayist, author, and lecturer. His most recent book, which I highly recommend, is Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century, and it is happening. His Twitter account, The Flautist, has been permanently censored. <laughs> His website is Patrick Lawrence. His concern, one that we should really share, is that there has been a qualitative turn in the media's relations with power. Yikes. Patrick Lawrence, it's so good to have you back. Thank you, Burton. Joining you and all your listeners up there in lovely Portsmouth. Uh, well, nice to hear your voice. Well, you co you locate the start of this serious, most unfortunate change as occurring in the wake of 9-11. You quote Jill Abramson, who became the New York Times executive editor. We remember in Watergate that we could rely on that paper, that and the Washington Post, to stand up to pressure from Washington and to carry on the tradition of independent, truly free journalism. Here's that quote from Abramson. Journalists are Americans too. I consider myself, like I'm sure many of you do, to be a patriot, end of quote from uh, Jill Abramson. Well, what's wrong with that? Uh, Bert, um, Abramson was uh, justifying uh, a decision she and all the leading editors in Washington, Times, Post, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, who have you, uh, made uh, made a decision uh, a few days after September 11. Uh, Ari Fleischer, uh, yes. Bush 2's press secretary, convened a conference call with all these people. Abramson uh, 
as you say, went on to be exec editor, but uh, at this time she was Washington bureau chief. And uh, Ari Fleischer said to them, look, uh, I want to ask you not to report any stories illuminating the practices of our national security state, that's my term, not his, no, uh, it's, yeah, it's as we prosecute our new war on terror. And Abramson said, uh, none of us there hesitated to agree to this. And it was subsequent to that that she felt called upon, and I'm quoting a long lecture she gave, uh, to say, look, we're, we're patriots too, right? Uh, uh, and we just wanted to do the American thing. Uh, a couple of remarks to make about mm. this, Bert. Number mm -hmm. one, uh, Abramson took her place in a long line of uh, objectionable people, I will come out and say. Uh, it, it, during the Cold War, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, hundreds of journalists collaborated with the CIA. Uh, the Church Committee was supposed to expose all this. The Church Committee is not historically what we most of us may remember it to be. But uh, mm -hmm. a year following the Church Committee's 16 volumes, uh, or six volumes, um, uh, Carl Bernstein uh, turned the lights on, and he said there are 400 journalists collaborating with the CIA. And as he interviewed them, they came up with the most startling explanations for why they did this. He was naming names and so on, right? Uh, and among those names were, was Joe Alsop, who, with his brother Stuart, was a columnist, uh, a columnist for the New York Herald Tribune, uh, uh, subsequently the Washington Post, uh, and and you know the the Cold Warrior or par excellence, right? Uh, and he said, "Look, Mr. Bernstein, I did that because I thought it was the right thing to do. I, as an American citizen, it was my duty, right?" Abramson, I assume, who is not literate enough to understand, but uh, she was basically rephrasing. Uh, Joe Alsop, right? Uh, so there's that. Um, uh, the larger point here, Bert, why do I choose 2001 for my point of departure? Um, uh, my feeling is this, or my view is this. Uh, I, I want to reference for your listeners uh, a man named Rudolf Rocker. He was one of those splendid 19th century uh, anarchists uh, who late in his life uh, wrote a book called Culture and Nationalism. Mm. And his thesis uh, stripped down, not, over, not oversimplified, but in it, at its core, was that all cultural institutions are required to serve the state as the state accumulates power and projects it, right? Mm. I think uh, 2001... Uh, through the American state, the, the leadership, the national security apparatus, all of it, into a, a, a severe defensive crouch. That, uh, uh, an extreme defensiveness came over them. Uh, they were suddenly an anxious and uncertain uh, mm. collection of institutions. And I think at that point, uh, Rocker's thesis, 
became applicable. We have to fight our corner. Our empire is challenged, uh, and and we need everybody on side. I think that was one reason they invented the term war on terror. Mm-hmm. War, war inevitably alters the relationship between the press and the government. It's just the way it is, right? Uh, it's doing it again now in the Ukraine case. <laughs> and... Um, Sometimes that's quite understandable, World War II and so forth, right? Uh, but uh, Abramson and the others also, shortly thereafter, accepted without hesitation the term war on terror. And as we all know, it began to be used uh, commonly in the newspapers. Mm. That was a big mistake. So I take it from 2001, when the relationship between the press and the American government, not for a very long time, a healthy relationship, took a, a very deep swoon down. Um, and all that has occurred since, by way of the press's derelictions and uh, delinquencies, lapses of principle and mm-hmm. so forth, uh, began it, or, or has its we can trace the, the roots of all our problems now I call it the press mess uh, we can trace the roots of the press mess to those early moments after 2001 that's that's why I settled on that moment and it does seem I, I remember you know in 2003 when uh, Bush invaded Iraq without any actual reason the, the press, Stayed away from any protests. Any people were at at the time before two thousand three. Uh, there had been a a fairly strong tradition of, of protesting against uh, unnecessary wars, and it just seemed every all the press fell in line and just absolute lockstep. And that was the yeah. thing we were afraid of as kids about the Soviet yeah. Union, and and. So in the wake of 9-11, there was, you say there was an agreement with the press not to publish any stories that would go into details like about these things were real, the CIA kidnappings, yeah. the black sites, the extraordinary rendition, indiscriminate mm-hmm. surveillance of Americans. Um, was, there, was there any other option? I mean, couldn't the press have, have you know, didn't, didn't they have other choices to make? Of course, of course, Bert. Uh, they're bound not to make them, given the ownership structure and so on. Ah. But uh, look, uh, I think 2001, to put our point in another way, very simply, was the beginning of what is being imposed upon us now, which is an information monoculture, okay? Mm. Uh, um, did they have choices? I think we need to say theoretically, no. most certainly they had choices. They could, uh, in that phone call with Ari Fleischer, I'm not suggesting that was the the sole event here, right? It was just a very clear expression of what was going, uh, example of what was going on. They could have said, no, uh, Ari, um, we are not going to participate in the censorship of our own publications. Uh, if you want us to be censored as to what we report, you, you go ahead and censor us 
so we can see state censorship for where it is. They mm. didn't do that, right? Uh, in 2003, <coughs> uh, in, in 2003, uh, we had the phenomenon of uh, embedded correspondence. Yes. This is a really insidious practice. Um, when it f was first imposed, the earlier war, 1991, mm -hmm. um, um, Operation Something or Other, I get all these operations mixed up. <laughs> Desert see. Storm, was it? I guess yeah. so. I can't remember. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. It was Desert Storm, right? Uh, um, that was the first uh, conflict in which American correspondents were obliged to embed with uh, mm -hmm. various units of, I don't know the size, uh, yeah. company, brigade, whatever. Um, uh, and they should have said no. You know, that to embed is, to embed a correspondent is to control what that correspondent sees, to control what that correspondent sees is roughly to control what that correspondent writes. Right. Um, and they should have said no then. These are choices to they made, right? Um, but as we saw, to jump forward a touch, uh, as we saw uh, during the Russiagate fable, um, uh, there was no willingness to do that. Uh, by 2016, when Russiagate uh, mm -hmm. erupted upon us with the emergence of Trump as a national political figure, uh, we could see uh, the, the press was thoroughly re-enlisted in the national security state's cause, right? Uh, and so, um, yes, there were choices. Well, most definitely, there always are. But it's a question of the will and principles of those making these choices, and uh, we mustn't fool ourselves uh, on, on those sort of counts. They just weren't there. No, they weren't. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift, folks. We need everybody involved in keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is our returning guest, Patrick Lawrence, uh, correspondent, uh, journalist par excellence, who's written about the historic collapse of journalism. And I, I will tell you, I, I remember that the embedded reporter thing. I was... I was interviewing a reporter back then when Bush uh, invaded Iraq on this same show, and I noticed she was just parroting government phrases. And, and yeah. I, I pointed that out. I asked her, are you embedded? And, and she just dropped the line. She quit. She did not want to face that. She was theoretically a reporter. I don't know what, what happened to her. But going back to the 1930s, wasn't it the case that reporters would also act this way, boosting the official line? I think back in the 30s it was some, yes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the relationship between the press and the government uh, has not been particularly uh, ad admirable or desirable for a very long time, right? Uh, back in the 20s... Um, Walter Lippmann, ah, yes. uh, the younger Walter Lippmann, the sort of uh -huh. socialist Walter Lippmann, right, uh, um, published a report he co-wrote with a man named Charles Mears called A Test of the News, right? It was an examination of the New York Times coverage of the Bolshevik Revolution, 
Um, and um, the, the thought was, the, the, the thought was, uh, how did the Times, the Times, Wilson wanted the Russians to stay in the war, right? The Wilson administration. Of course, yeah. Um, uh, and as long as it appeared that the Bolsheviks would remain in the war, um, the Times wrote glowing, well, glowing might be a little strong, but favorable yes. reports yes. About, the, about the Bolsheviks. When it became clear that the Bolsheviks were pulling the new Soviet Union out of the war, it was wall-to-wall red scare. It, the mm. coverage swiveled like a bloody weather vane, right? Mm. So that was... That was Lipman's. They published that in the New Republic. Your yep. listeners can go and Google that. A test of the news, Walter Lipman. The whole thing is there in a PDF. Uh, um, it's very interesting that. Uh, so uh, at least from that time onward. But let's not forget the the Hearsts and the, the Yellow Peril and. Uh, the Spanish-American War, uh, yeah. right? Yep, yep. You provide the pictures, I'll provide the war, right? <laughs> right. Uh, um, remember? Yeah, <laughs> um, Hearst. So it hasn't been too good. Right? No, it hasn't. Uh, but I have to ask, the concentration of ownership of the media, That yeah. it, it, did it not used to be the case that corporate interests, the owners of the papers, back during the Watergate era, era and maybe other times, I don't remember, that they really didn't interfere with the work of reporters, that they recognized that, you know, they, they wanted, I mean, their, their business is to make money, to sell advertising, mm -hmm. uh, and that people liked independence in the case of reporters. So, but that changed dramatically in, in 2001. I mean, they, am, am I wrong? Did they not uh, interfere very uh. much? No, you're not wrong, but uh, I, wrong I'd like to, I made a re refine things here. Please. First of all, to conclude my earlier point, Bert, oh, uh, while the press's relationship with power has not been brilliant for a very, very long time, we can say a century at least, um, there have been serious mile markers. One was the first Cold War when, um, we, we've already touched on it briefly, when the performance of the press in, in the Cold War cause was was completely inexcusable. Mm -hmm. And I'm what I'm positing is that 2001 was another such mile marker, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, about uh, as to what publishers used to do, uh, we have to be careful. Uh, there was, for a very long time, John Pilger shares this thought with me, mm -hmm. there... There was, for a very long time, a place in most newspapers <laughs> for the independent few, you know, the outliers, right? Uh, um, and I was one of those uh, at the International Herald Tribune. Um, you know, you, you had to cross every T and dot every I. Or as I like to say, you have to dot every, dot every T and cross every I. Right? <laughs> uh, you 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 know, but if you got your here we go P's and Q's all lined up, uh, uh, you could write what you wanted. The Herald Tribune was a somewhat singular paper in that way, but uh, um, and that certainly that window certainly closed 
beginning in the triumphalist 90s, and certainly after 2001, that's the end of that, right? On the other hand, um, there are always, we must always be mindful of, of the invisible exertions of pressure and uh, influence, uh, coercion, that are not, that can't be seen in that uh, a reporter at the New York Times or the Post or whatever knows exactly, this is my way of putting it, knows exactly where the fence posts are. Uh, mm, I mean, mm. and knows exactly how far, how close he or she can get to them without stepping outside of them. You step outside of them and you don't have a job. Um, and so that's also uh, a, a very real factor in mainstream journalism. I was for many decades working in the mainstream and, and most there was no doubt that that was going on and goes on still. I think what you mean, and you're correct in this, after 2001, publishers and senior editors became very, very active in, uh, in enforcing conformity to a, to a level. You know, you're taught as a journalist to be careful of the word unprecedented. What's unprecedented under the sun, right? Uh, but I, it, the word tempts me this time. I, uh, it may be to an unprecedented degree that publishers and senior management intervened in what was reported, written, and published. Um, mm. You know, in this again, R Rudolf Rocker in in the service of the of the demanding state, right? In the service of the state, and you know. I, I always thought, I mean, yes, I recognized my long-lasting naivete and belief in traditional American values like a free press. Uh, <laughs> but what, the, the, what, what do you see as the power of the media when it's put to a perverse purpose? I mean, what, what's the long-term damage when reporters, you know— they, they, they're worried about the fence post and seeing, uh oh, I'm coming up on mm -hmm. the fence post. They could lose their job and they, you know, they have to work for money. What's the long term damage and, and, and the worry that, you know, we've gone so long now since 2001 without these, with a lack of courage, so it seems. And, and we, yeah. we've always valued the free press. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think we can think through these, this question of what happened to journalism in isolation. It's, this, we, we have to keep this in, in context of our, of our polity, of our public discourse altogether, right? You know, mm -hmm. Bert? Uh, and, um, uh, the long-term consequences? Well, to begin with, I think we are in that condition Jefferson did not favor. I was so pleased mm -hmm. you quoted that. Uh, effectively, there's there's no line between the media and the nation, the nation state, the national security state at this point. There, there just isn't. Um, not of any meaning, right? So effectively, we are in a condition of government without newspapers, Ooh. right? They look like newspapers. They cost just as much. Uh, when you hold one in your hands, it's a newspaper. But they are... Simulacra, you know, they are 
resemblances of newspapers, right? They are basically bulletin boards at this point, mm. right? Mm. So there's that, right? Um, and I, as I suggested in either the column that brings us together today or another one, I am not sure. This has gone so far now, I'm not sure the damage done to the press, uh, self-inflicted by and large, uh, is any longer reparable. Mm. Uh, and and it's it's the reason I I'm going to climb on my horse now. It's a reason I think the the future of this profession uh, and the dynamism in journalism now lies among independent publications. They are not equipped by way of resources right. to anything comp- comparable to traditional media. But it's where the good work is getting done. It's where our, our profession's integrity is preserving itself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's my thought on independent media. Uh, now, it, more broadly, the psychological consequences of this, uh, uh, I mean, on all of us, right, is, is really... Extremely unfortunate. That's too mild a term. Uh, our minds are being narrowed. If you if you reflect back on the Cold War, Cold War One, uh, um, Americans were gradually rendered incapable of managing complexity of any kind. It was all John Wayne movies. Yes, good guys, bad guys. Yep. Right. Uh, it was a very narrow. Um, kind of withered uh, consciousness, you know, it's very sad to think about it. I I often say when the topic comes up, we haven't begun to register the deep scars the Cold War left upon us, and that's one of them. Um, and this is happening again. Uh, uh, we are incapable of understanding uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine uh, unless we resort to independent publications, as I just said, you mm-hmm. can you can get proper accounts of what's going on if you go and find them. Uh, um, uh, but by and large, uh, most of us continue to rely on um, uh, traditional print and broadcasting for our information. Uh, and what happened during Cold War One is is back and being reinforced. Uh, I find it very sad uh, on the part of the press. I find it absolutely diabolic. Uh, you know, they're without conscience, right? Um, as they behave in this way. Uh, but I find it very sad because, you know, uh, I'm right with you, Bert. We're 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 fundamentally good people. Um, and, and you know, this is a kind of, uh, what, intellectual violence being practiced on us. That, mm. And the really most regrettable thing about all this is how horribly effective it is. It is. It's and- really, you know, the, we're gonna, I'm going to just call it propaganda, right? No. Uh, how horribly effective these psyops and propaganda campaigns are, you know, uh, there's one going on as we speak. There, the the Ukrainians have 
taken some territory in the east of the country and they've reoccupied this city called Ezium and suddenly we have mass graves and this and that and the other. I'm examining that now. I'm writing about it this afternoon. Uh, It looks to me like another propaganda exercise, right? Uh, But that's what's in the New York Times today. Your listeners can go and find it. And it's powerful. It works, right? And it seems like the the conclusions are already there, and then uh, the the press sort of has all right. Here's here's the conclusion. We're gonna back it up, you know. Mm. Instead of investigating and checking it out and thinking, well, maybe there's another way to see it, you know, it's it's already there, and it's about yeah storytelling to a large degree, and yeah. Uh, what you talk about? I mean, storytelling came in under well, maybe it was uh, increased under Obama. Uh, there was fiction writer Obama had yes. his chief advisor for strategic communications, Ben Rhodes, chief advisor for strategic communications. Nod, nod, wink, wink. He mm. he was a storyteller. How did uh, Ben Rhodes? Use the writer's tools to shape what to shape the news and 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 being a storyteller rather. Than, I mean, that's different from being a reporter. I think. Yeah. Well, he had uh, basically the uh, he he points out very astutely. Uh, you're referencing a a New York Times magazine profile of Ben Rhodes and his uh, deputy Ned. Uh, Ned Price, who's now uh, the State Department spokesman, right? Oh, my, um, oh right, right, right. And uh, um, Rose was was refreshingly blunt about what was going on. Uh, uh, he he pointed out, you know, in the old days, um, newspapers had bureaus overseas, yes, and correspondents <laughs> reporting back. Yes. They don't have bureaus overseas anymore, by and large, and the peop- the, the cars- correspond newspapers are now getting their foreign news in Washington. Right. They're coming to us, and the people that come to us are of an average age of twenty seven. And I, I'm I'm not going to offend the twenty seven year olds among you. I'm just going to no. quote Ben Rhodes. He said, "They come to us and they know nothing." If they if they want to know what's going on in Moscow, they ask us, right? Uh, and so Rhodes would shape what we're calling a narrative now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then Ned Price would get on his speed dial and uh, call a call a, his established contacts in the press and among the broadcasters, um, and as Price. Uh, described what went on, uh, again, fairly forthrightly, he said, you know, uh, I would give these people uh, the shape of a story and some talking points, and the next thing I know, they were reproducing it uh, in the newspapers and on air uh, as if it was their reporting. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to do that. It that story way. came out in 2016. I don't imagine your listeners hmm. will have any trouble wondering 
why I've never forgotten it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key aspect of democracy, a free press, which we've always, at least uh, verbally treasured. Our guest today is Patrick Lawrence, uh, who had been a correspondent abroad for many years, written for the International Herald Tribune. We're talking about the historic collapse of journalism. And what Ben Rhodes was doing and others, you call it the commodification of our public discourse. And that infamous New Yorker editor for too long, Tina Brown, she declared in that magazine, everything had to have a buzz. What about that commodification of public discourse and commodification of news? One of the big sort of sort of long waves I was trying to convey in this column that brought us together this afternoon, Bert, uh, is a change in the sensibility. Um, uh, the changes in the press reflected a, a changes in American sensibilities after 2001, right? We, as I put it in that piece, uh, we turned away from the world and against it at the very same time. We became very, very aggressive, uh, military first in our uh, overseas policies, and we completely lost interest in what (coughs) other people said, thought, aspired to, their perspectives. We weren't interested anymore. Um, And and that is why the, the the circumstances I describe in the column, um, there, there was the reporting changed completely uh, in the way Rhodes described. Right, if you want to know about Cairo or Moscow, find it out. Find out in Washington. The perspective in Washington will do. Mm. Right, there's only one way to look at the world, and that's the American way. Right. Uh, right. Now. About Tina, what was your question about Tina? Um, um, that she said everything had to have a buzz in the New York. Oh yeah, you know, I, um, you know that was the commercialization. Of, I'm not the first one to remark on the <laughs> transformation of news into entertainment, right? Um, yes. uh, most obviously uh, among the broadcasters, right? Uh, in the old days, well, I won't go down that road. Uh, um, uh, but the New Yorker was a, a, a good example of how this played out in print, right? Uh, um, yeah, she uh, she basically caught the. She was pretty good at reading the zeitgeist, uh, Tina, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and she caught it that. Americans were post 9/11 quite self-absorbed and um, not really that interested in others, right? Uh, And so when she wanted, as I, I'll just take a minute here, uh, Bert. Uh, In the old days, uh, the New Yorker had correspondents around the world, uh, not many, but those correspondents were very deeply involved in their societies, right? They, they gave you, uh, you know, the inside story, uh, as I put it in the column, they, 
they could tell you the whispers in the palace and the uh, chatter in the coffee houses and so on, right? They they were really quite dug in. It was a very singular feature of the New Yorker's overseas coverage, typically published as letters from, letter from London, letter from Paris, letter mm-hmm. from Berlin. Uh, uh, and and I, I was writing, uh, while I was with the Herald Tribune, I, I started writing letter from Tokyo, right? Um, um, and uh, when Tina came in, um, all the correspondents who were uh, writing from abroad were rather gently or otherwise uh, retired. Um, and um, if they wanted a piece on Japan or Berlin, they sent someone out from New York to do it, who would come back and write the piece. Um, and I, it, it's a small matter, right? That, that I, I, I didn't... My letters from Tokyo ended when Tina came in, right? Uh. I wrote a few more, but they were never published. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, the next time they wrote about Japan, they sent somebody out from New York. Uh, you know, uh, of course, I would read it with a, mm. a different sort of yeah. set of eyes, but uh, th- this person patently knew very little about Japan, um, or Asia generally. Um, and, you know, the reporting in the Finnish piece showed that. But it didn't matter. What he did bring to it was, this is how we Americans want to see Japan. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh-huh. and that's good enough. We do not really want to hear too much about what the world looks like from Japanese eyes, right? Um, it's a big change. This lapse in our interest in the, the rest of the world. Our, we lost our curiosity. We, we, we lost any concern. We, we, we don't care what, uh, at, at, in this particular moment, Bert, the big problem in the, in the Ukraine conflict is we never cared about Russia's perspectives on security and NATO's expansion uh, yeah NATO's expansion and all that mm-hmm. Russia was uh, if you read the documents uh, Moscow issued last December uh, draft treaties meaning the, the the format suggested we would like to negotiate on these things and yes, reach agreements they right? did. Uh, I remember one went to NATO and one went to Washington these were dismissed out of hand there was never any serious discussion about them. Why? Because we're not interested in Russia's perspective, right? Uh, other people, the Russians, um, suffer from this, but I, I can tell you now, we are going to suffer more hmm. in the long, medium to long term. This is going to come back to bite us. And absolutely, I remember reading at the time, and I, I'm sure I, I may be somewhat unusual, that I remember that that Moscow put out uh, possible negotiating uh, uh, points, and I thought, well, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. And it was just dismissed out of hand that, no, we, this is not 
negotiate. It was they were offering actual negotiation, but I I do think they were mm-hmm. boxed in intentionally. I I and it's you know there there are those of us who I know again maybe this is old fashioned and naive, but but we like to. Uh, there are people who want to be accurately informed citizens, that we value a free press, that we want to participate in self-government, including foreign policy. But we are put yeah. at a serious adv- disadvantage yeah. on that. You're, 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 you're moving me back to my favorite topic. Well, <laughs> one of them. Uh, uh, and, and Bert, uh, I publish in independent publications now. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my days in mainstream are over. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I can tell you, my, my in my direct experience, there is a, a, a bottomless hunger among Americans for uh, accurate reporting and true accounts of events, including the four or five things I always identify as missing from mainstream. Uh, publications, um, history, chronology, causality, and responsibility. Ah, the fifth context. You'll never get these from. And if you, if if we are deprived of these five things, we're, we're living in a two-dimensional world. Uh, it's like wandering around on a stage, and all we can see are canvas flats with pictures of landscapes painted on them. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no depth, uh, and that's what these—that's what traditional media are doing to us. Right? Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm—I'm I'm delighted to note uh, again and again um, the enthusiasm with which people are uh, embracing in, in the, the better mm-hmm. independent uh, publications. You know, there's a lot of junk floating around, of course, but uh, what else is new? Uh, um, there's a lot of junk among what we count as traditional media, too. Oh, right? yeah. uh, but the best of these things are, 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 are working responsibly and so far as I can tell, and I'm pretty confident about this, are going to be playing an uh, an increasingly important role in our in the way we inform ourselves. I want to remind your listeners, those who know, in case they don't, uh, Gallup came out with some statistics uh, last just this past summer, July, right? Uh, I just finished a book about the press, so I happen to be paying attention to all this sort of thing. Right? Uh, um, uh, the number of Americans who rely on traditional newspapers, press, for accurate information, uh, percentage, sorry, the no percentage. Uh, I won't play the guess game. Uh, I'll just make sure you're sitting down. Yes. 16%. The number of Americans who rely, uh, who look to broadcast news for accurate information and accounts of events, 11%. Uh, 
Well, they're still publishing. They're still broadcasting. But this is not going to last forever. <laughs> Interest. I mean, as you say, there's a hunger. Where there's a hunger, that means advertising dollars. <laughs> That's what it's all. So I would think. But then again, that gets tricky, Bert. It does because a you're big right. Problem. A very big problem with uh, the traditional media is the power of advertisers. This goes back to the Cold War. I'll, sure. I'll just walk your readers through something. I, it's in this book I just mentioned, okay? When, when television first started in the very late 40s, uh, first started, sorry, first started broadcasting news, they didn't have any news crews, they didn't have any foreign experience, they didn't have any correspondence or any of that. The State Department and the Justice Department, Justice Department were literally writing the programs for them. Yeah. That's how bad it was, okay? And the, 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 the networks, they were not wealthy as they are now. Right. Uh, 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 and they had a hard time supporting uh, news broadcasts. A lot of people were skeptical it was even a good idea. Um, uh, and they were very dependent on sponsors. If you wanted Ipana toothpaste to sponsor your show, you better not say anything that would upset Ipana toothpaste right. uh, or make them nervous, right, about their customer base, right? Uh, so advertisers have very, very powerful influence over what was aired. This is. A, a rather graphic but a perfectly pertinent example of the power of advertising. Now, independent media could, we could use all the money we could get by way of resources, um, but advertising is a very complicated matter. Mm. Right? Uh, and whether, we don't have the revenue model down, right? Uh, one of my columns now appears at Shear Post, uh, published by Bob Shear, a really uh, honorable name uh, in independent publishing, going back to Ramparts Magazine. Sometime, ah, maybe yes. some of your listeners will remember good old Ramparts. Oh, right? I do. I well, that was, that was Bob Shear uh, oh, wow. hmm. co-editing with the very colorful iconoclast named Warren Hinkle. Nice. Anyway, mm -hmm. Bob said to me, look, when he hired me, he said, look, Patrick, I hope I'm not talking out of school. Uh, we, we're we doing well, it, we, independent media, but we don't have the revenue model yet. Right. As long as we can't pay our writers proper compensation so they can make a good living without working 18 hours a day, uh, we don't have it right, you know. So this is a problem, right? I won't bother your listeners by telling them my hours, but uh, mm. they are law, right? I'm um, sure. <laughs> and, um, you know, so by way of resources, it's not quite consolidated uh, among the independent media. We're, we're donation based or subscriber based and so forth um, it gets us through but you know wouldn't it be nice if sheer post or consortium news or something uh -huh. like that could field we could field our own correspondence and you know uh, 
uh, have uh, well, you know have network bureau networks and all that. It's it's unimaginable now, but. Well, it is going through a big change. There's no question about that. And I thought you had an interesting point. There was uh, a psychological collapse, more vastly more consequential than the collapse of the towers, sorrowful as the 3,000 fatalities were. Talk about that. that that's an important point, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, thank you, Bert, for singling that out. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, this is a term from T.S. Eliot, the, the objective correlative. If you're talking about a rainy autumn afternoon, right, uh, that's an objective correlative for an emotional state you're trying to describe, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And as I watched, uh, as I watched the endless, endless looping footage of the towers coming down, how many hundreds of times did we all watch it? Yeah. Um, I think that was our objective correlative to a kind of internal collapse, right? A, a whole belief system fell that day. Um, we can name it, for the sake of simplicity, our exceptionalist consciousness, but yeah. there's more to be said about it, right? We, uh, America, a part of our exceptionalism was that we were immune from history, right? Right. Uh, right? As Arnold Toynbee said in one of his later essays, uh, recalling his childhood, history was something unpleasant that happened to other people, <laughs> right? Uh, um, and uh, that's how we felt about it. Calamities, awful things, they happen to other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we are immune, going back to the 17th century. We were outside of time. That's why right. my last book is called Time No Longer. Right? Uh, um, and suddenly, we were subject to the depredations of time and history. That's what collapsed. We were just like other mm. people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We were no longer a people apart. And in consequence, I, I think people became absolutely desperate yes. for something to believe in, for something to hold on to. And I think this helps account for a phenomenon uh, I am sure both of us understand quite, quite thoroughly, given we share, roughly speaking, an age. Yes. Um, the very institutions that we used to hold in quite justified suspicion the CIA and so forth, right, are now elevated to wonderful organizations, and what would we do without them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think it's because people had to find something urgently, find something to hold on to in a world where a whole belief system suddenly collapsed on a single morning, Right. Uh, yes. That's my read. Um, I think, and I think the press reflects this too. Yes, it does. And I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, uh, after, as you say, after September 11th, the first suddenly, then not so. One administration after another insisted there's only one way to understand the world, the American way. There's no need to understand or consult as to anyone else's. 
And you suggest that this approach is the refuge of the anxious and uncertain. I think that's a very interesting point. That uh, So maybe you can say more about that anxious and uncertain uh, and the refuge from that. Yeah, well, thank you for signaling that out. Um, I, uh, <coughs> it, it, it goes to what we were just discussing. Um, uh, what, what's been... The drift of history since 2001, arguably before that, but most certainly since 2001, uh, is that we are living in, uh, in, a, in an age of decline. Any of your listeners who don't like that word, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, if, the, if, if they object to this phrase, uh, I'm sorry again. We are look. We are living in a in a condition of imperial decline, right? Oh, uh, yeah. um, and uh, we are not ready for this. <laughs> Mama never said there would be days <laughs> like this, right? Uh, and and, um, and I think it's it it's it's causing us to turn our back on the world, and it's causing our journalists to indulge in a, in a long-established practice, the practice of omission, which I call polo, the power of leaving out, um, uh, to, to extravagant degrees. Um, if, the, if, if the drift of history and, and global events is not conforming to a story of ourselves that we refuse to surrender in the face of new circumstances, well, we're just going to have to stop listening to new global events because our story is more important than reality, mm. if you see my, what I mean, right? At, at this point, I like to say to friends that the lump under the carpet is getting to be so large you can't make it to the other side of the room, right? Uh, uh, there's so much that they're leaving out, right? Um, uh, one example, if I may, there sure. was a uh, there was a, uh, a conference in Samarkand um, the last few days uh, of of an organization called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization (SCO). China started it. Russia's a member. All those Central Asian republics are members. One of the big deals going on in Samarkand was that Iran was accepted as a full member. Uh And an even bigger deal, although it's not sealed yet, none other than India wants to join it. This is the coalescence of the non-Western powers into a a very coherent, uh, in this case an organization, but uh, beyond that, they share a very coherent worldview. Uh, and and I, I take this as a major marker in a process I count as absolutely imperative for our century, which is the achievement of parity between the West and non-West. Yep. Okay? I defy your listeners to tell me anything, anything, anything they have read about this in the mainstream press. Yeah. Nothing. 
Nothing. Well, I think right? it does, and, and we've come to the end of the hour. We could go on and on. But, you know, this whole American exceptionalism, the American century, it's it's over, people. The, the American exceptionalism was never really true, and that there's an opportunity there to be part of the world and to just join in part of the world. Uh, and you certainly talk about that uh, in your book, uh, that... Uh, a time, time no longer Americans after the American century. Yeah. So, if people are interested well, in reading more of your uh, stuff, what what can you suggest to them that they uh, take a look at your independent? They can look at uh, they can look at my columns on Sheer Post, uh, Bob Sheer S C H E E R Post. Bob Sheer sees a press critic in me, so I'm doing an imitation of good old Joe Lightling. Right. Uh, uh, or Consortium News. Ah, yes. As I said, I just finished a book about the press. It's called The, the Journalist in His Shadow. Uh, no. I'm very, it was a really difficult uh, delivery. Let's call it a messy <laughs> cesarean. Right? Uh, but it's done. Right? Oh, good. And they can't read that yet because we're just sending it to a publisher. Um, well, we'll watch for it. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, if I may... Yeah. Um, uh, the remark you just made, uh, Bert, because I, I always ask readers, not always, I, I sometimes ask readers, don't miss the optimism beneath yes. the apparent pessimism. Yes. We Americans can be, will be so much better off if we drop the pretenses and assumed burdens of empire, hegemony, global leadership, what have you, uh, and greet the future with imagination, uh, some bravery, some courage, some dexterity to move differently in a different landscape. This is all there for us. I'm not going to sell it as something... Uh, we're on the way to doing tomorrow. Yeah. But we can do this. It is within our grasp. Yes. Um, uh, I, I don't know how we can... Uh, we need new leadership to accomplish this. That's not on the horizon. I don't want to mess things up for you, Bert, but I don't think yeah. much of our political process, right? Uh, uh, so we, we lack... We don't even have left anymore the mediating institutions through which we can make our preferences clear. Right? Um, but it's there. Uh, it is and, there. And I, I don't think we should, I don't think, I, I decline to surrender my optimism. I remember years ago, Same. and uh, I'll be Same. quiet after this, I was, I was interviewing this really wonderful sociologist in uh, India. Right, quite a well-known fellow, um, Visvanathan, Professor Visvanathan, and I leaned across. We were taking apart India's problems. I, I leaned across his desk when I when we were done. I said, uh, "Listen, Professor, uh, I always end my interviews with this question: Are you an optimist or a pessimist?" And he said, without hesitating, "Of course, I'm an optimist. Why would I bother?" with critique otherwise. Absolutely, indeed. And I, I remain optimistic as well. So, uh, thank you. Patrick Lawrence, always terrific to uh, have you on this uh, show, Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much. And uh, You're most welcome, Bert. 
Nice to talk. I believe newspapers are great mental shapers. My steel industry is dependent on them, really. Just you call the news and we'll tell all the news from coast to coast and from border to border.